This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to part two of the Outsource Chief Investment Officer episode with Steve Adang from Anchor Pacific. And if you want to go back and listen to episode one, if you haven't done so yet, probably worth going back and giving that episode a listen first, just to get your bearings here. We pretty much pick up right in the middle of the conversation. This episode will be good for IROC credits, the much promised IROC credits. By extension, though, that means there are some credits where it's not going to be valid. You have to be careful if you're in Saskatchewan. This is all investment management. In Saskatchewan, for example, limits the number of credits you can get on the investment management side. You have to track that. You have to know how many investment-related credits you're getting if you're in the province of Saskatchewan. And it will not be good for accident and sickness credits in Alberta. It will be good for life insurance credits, however, in Alberta. If you're looking specifically for Alberta ANS credits, or if you're in one of the provinces that restricts the number of credits you can get on the investment side, then you'll want to be careful about how you use the credits available from this episode. The color for today's episode is white. The color for today's episode is white. Before we get into the second part of the interview with Steve, we're going to spend a fair bit of time in this interview talking about fiduciary duty. And I want to talk about this for a few minutes. This is a place where I run into an awful lot of confusion. Fiduciary duty means that when I am giving somebody some sort of advice or guidance, the assumption is that a fiduciary is placing the interest of the person who is receiving that guidance ahead of their own. This is a legal standard, and it's an important distinction here that most financial advice is actually not subject to a fiduciary duty. The vast majority of the financial advice that we see given is subject to a suitability standard or a professional responsibility. And under a suitability or professional responsibility standard, this means that you have to show that the advice you gave did not cause harm to the client, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the advice that's in their best interests. When we see most uh, insurance sales or financial planning types of engagements or most investment sales, notwithstanding 
specific stock recommendations. Specific stock recommendations are a little bit different, but the majority of financial advice that's given is subject to that standard, to a suitability standard, which really means that you did what somebody else with your level of education and experience would have done. It's a reasonable standard to be held to and that what you did didn't harm the client. It might not have been the best possible thing for the client, but it's going to get them closer to their objectives. It's just not necessarily the thing that would have been absolutely the best for them. Whereas in a fiduciary standard, the concept here is that what you did really placed the interest of the client ahead of your own. And probably the easiest example I can give you here is let's say just for the sake of argument that you sell life insurance and you sell life insurance in a proprietary environment. So you only have a limited product shelf available. You're not in a brokerage role where you can access all kinds of insurance products. Client comes to you and you put them through underwriting and you know that the product that you're going to put them in because of your proprietary product shelf is not as favorable given their underwriting outcomes as some product that's available elsewhere on the market. And yet you still sell them that product where the premiums might be a little bit higher, some of the maybe exclusions might be a little bit more restrictive, underwriting might be a little bit tougher. You put them into that product knowing that there's a better product out there. You have probably met your suitability standard but you probably have not met the fiduciary standard. Now, that being said, it's not impossible that a financial advisor finds themselves in a fiduciary capacity. It's not that common. And normally, in order to demonstrate that a financial advisor is in a fiduciary capacity, we would have to go to court. We'd have to end up in court, and the courts will potentially impose a fiduciary standard. The language that you'll see in court rulings around this is that there has to be a special relationship of trust. And that special relationship of trust really means that the advisor would be in a position where they have access to information that the client wouldn't have access to, and they would have established a relationship where the client would basically take anything the advisor says at face value. This has happened on occasion. We've seen this in some instances where an elderly client with diminished capacity, not lost capacity, but diminished capacity, may have placed an extraordinary amount of trust in an advisor. We also have seen this. The classic case here takes us back to the 80s, and I talked about this on a previous episode, the Hodgkinson v. Sims case. This is a case in which a tax advisor was uh, selling a product where there was a commission attached to it and the advisor did not disclose that commission to the client. The clients thought they were getting tax advice when it turned out they were really getting investment advice. That tax advisor was found to be in a, a fiduciary capacity or acting in a fiduciary capacity. Those who carry the RFP designation, the Registered Financial Planner, I often hear folks in that world say that they hold out as a fiduciary. And certainly if you write a letter of engagement or if maybe on your website you say, I am a fiduciary, I always have a fiduciary relationship to my clients, then yeah, you probably are 
a fiduciary, and if your client sues you, then they're going to have an easier time collecting more damages because of that fiduciary relationship. I would suggest that if you are holding out as a fiduciary, that you should notify your errors and omissions insurer of such. If your ENO insurer thinks they're insuring you under a professional responsibility standard, but you're really operating under a fiduciary standard, that might generate a problem as far as your ENO coverage goes. So you do have to make sure your ENO carrier knows how you are holding out or how you present yourself to clients. Okay, so we know then financial advisors generally are not held to a fiduciary standard, barring that special relationship of trust. So when Steve talks about this, he's going to talk about this from the portfolio manager's perspective. Now, the portfolio manager in Canada has traditionally been a pure asset management role, not really a client-facing role. So if we were having this discussion about a portfolio manager maybe 40 years ago, we would have really been talking about somebody who was managing institutional money, mutual fund money or pension money, something like that. And that person would have had no sort of face-to-face -face relationships with clients. Today, however, we find portfolio managers filling many more roles. And I would suggest you can have what Steve talks about here in this interview, which is he's a fiduciary and he's certainly a fiduciary to his clients, but as you'll hear him talk about, he doesn't go out and sort of recruit individual clients like the typical listener to this podcast would. Instead, he is counting on referral networks to send him those clients. So that's one situation where we can have the PM and a PM under National Instrument 31103 is held to a fiduciary standard. The other thing that we see are asset managers, portfolio managers who are in a client-facing role. This is actually becoming increasingly common and a lot of Canadian advisors I see doing this, they will register directly with the Securities Commission, just like we heard Steve talk about in the last episode, as portfolio managers, that subjects them to a fiduciary standard when they're giving investment advice to their clients. I would suggest there's some room for interpretation as to whether they are fiduciaries when it comes to financial planning or insurance or tax advice, but certainly if we follow the national instruments, that portfolio manager who's in a direct client-facing role, and really that means that person is probably acting in a discretionary capacity where they bring in client money, and then the PM has discretion over how that client money gets transacted. That person is almost certainly a fiduciary on the asset side or the investment side, but it is questionable the extent to which that fiduciary role extends into other areas of advice, financial planning or insurance or tax or estate planning or whatever you have. Our other fiduciaries in Canada, a lawyer. A lawyer is normally a fiduciary when dealing with a client. They have to put the client's best interest ahead of their own. Accountants do have a fiduciary duty when it comes to their audit role. So an accountant in an audit role is expected to act as a fiduciary, but that's not necessarily true if the accountant is simply giving uh, tax advice. Physicians act as fiduciaries 
when they're dealing with their patients. And then we get into some murkier areas, whether it's teachers or priests or counselors or parents. Parents are normally held as fiduciaries for their kids. But there's all some gray area in there. It's not clear. We can't say universally that a parent is always acting as a fiduciary. Now, some of you might be thinking about the FP Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility here. And the FP Canada Standards do not explicitly use the word fiduciary. They stay away from the F word. And instead, they talk about a duty of loyalty to the client. And I would suggest that this is pretty close to a fiduciary standard. It's probably a little bit stronger than simply the uh, suitability standard that I previously talked about but it doesn't go so far as to establish a true fiduciary relationship. And I think in Canada, we're probably quite a ways from having a fiduciary relationship as a sort of standard. And I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on the banks here or anything like that, but I did mention this earlier, that a fiduciary standard is difficult to maintain when you have a limited product shelf. And a great number of financial advisors and financial planners in Canada do work in an environment, whether it's in a bank or whether it's at a firm that doesn't have brokerage contracts, a career sales force sort of firm, where that fiduciary standard might not actually be possible to adhere to, or at least it might present itself in fairly strong conflict with the obligations you have to the sort of parent corporation. And we've seen this in the United States. We've seen a couple of big firms in the United States back away from encouraging their advisors to go get the certified financial planner certification because in the United States, there is a fiduciary duty attached to CFP certification. And those firms recognize that it puts them into a little bit of a compliance difficulty. So you'll find not everybody is excited about pursuing that fiduciary standard. A little bit of speculation here on my part, but I really would be surprised if we have a, an across-the-board fiduciary standard anytime soon in Canada. I just think our industry isn't really built for it as it stands. And again, my personal opinion here, I don't think a fiduciary standard changes that much. I think I would rather have an advisor who is well-educated and understands the types of products and services that I need, where then I know when I'm sitting down with that person, I can have a good conversation with them and it's likely to have good outcomes. In this particular interview, when Steve talks about having a fiduciary duty to his clients, well, if I'm the advisor sending money over to somebody like Steve for management, then yeah, I probably do want that person held to that fiduciary standard. That's, I would suggest, fairly important there. I know then that if Steve's firm did something inappropriate, bought some investments that didn't make sense, and Steve talks about this in the interview, put commissions or their ability to earn an income ahead of the best possible portfolios for their clients, then yeah, I would be wanting to have some recourse around that. But I would really prefer that I just understand how whatever firm I'm dealing with chooses its investments, what their investment philosophy is, and the fiduciary standard, I would suggest, is a maybe the cherry on the cake here, not the thing that we should be looking for as our number one. All right, on that note, let's hear what uh, Steve has to say. Again, lots of good stuff in this interview, and I'll have a couple of comments just at the end here. 
enjoy. Would you say that an offering like yours, if I'm an advisor and I pick up an offering like yours, do you think that increases stickiness with the client? I think absolutely, because it affirms the advisor's role as that trusted advisor, that strategic CFO, if that's what you'd like to call it. So um, it's evident in the numbers, uh, the ability to grow business, to transition clients to uh, more of a fee-based annuity-like business and revenue stream. Not that this should be looked at as a revenue stream, but that is the truth of the underlying business. I believe that uh, relationships have and will prove to be stickier as a result. Perfect. Yeah. Everybody's got to get paid. That's a reality whether we like it or not, right? So got to think about how that happens. Any other comments you have about the advisor who might be looking at a model like this, what options they have out there, if they're kind of looking around the marketplace, whether it's a straight up investment management or whether it's a more focused, maybe is the word here, outsourced chief investment officer, what does the Canadian advisor have on the shelf for them? I'm going to answer that question more, you know, to an advisor more ge- generically that it, you know, is not a, an investment counselor. Frankly, uh, the past has been a lot of use of various prepackaged solutions, trailer-based mutual funds and seg funds, which are really not, in our opinion, an IM solution. And they're also pretty expensive for the client in relation to what they're getting. So that's kind of one of the more traditional options. The other one is self-sufficiency. There's a tremendous amount of expertise and time and money that's associated with establishing that internally. Once again, that lines up with what do you see as your value proposition? And if it's critical to that, or if your clients think it's critical, then you need to make a decision as to whether you can be self-sufficient in this area, or if you can actually externalize and frame it as an extension of your business, which is how we like to guide it because that's how we're offering it. I mentioned this self-sufficiency also comes with a significant barrier to entry as well, meaning that achieving those designations, you know, I think the BCSC is bringing on maybe two or three PM firms a year, new firms. So there's about 30 of the 200 PMAC members that are principally headquartered in British Columbia. So the barriers are high to this. Um, So then it comes down to the externalized decision. And and the present really is what I spoke to. It's this referral and kind of take a backseat approach where those firms are really internalizing all of their own strategies as opposed to, you know, offering the true open architecture. And it's frankest sense means that you can invest in anything without an organizational constraint. There may be other constraints, meaning you won't necessarily be able to invest in some of the largest, say, private equity fund structures because you don't meet the required minimum, or there may be an issue where you're not eligible to invest in the structure based on where you live. Those are different form of constraints. When I speak to organizational constraints, it means there is a 
you know, a referendum of sorts, or I don't know if that's the, the right way to put it, but you've got a closed menu of offerings, meaning the organization is limiting the opportunity set, and it's usually based on something pre-existing within their organizational structure or their internal menu of strategies. So true open architecture, true outsourcing means you are globally unconstrained from an organization standpoint. If I'm an MFDA advisor, I'm just not going to have access to the suite of stuff that you have access to. That's a big win, right? And I get that, you know, that product shelf is fairly tight and then kind of gradually opens up. I guess if I'm thinking about it this way, that open architecture is wide open, right? You've removed almost all constraints as far as the types of, I don't want to say investments, but opportunities are available. Would that be a fair summary? Absolutely. And uh, and I would also say that by this role of fiduciary governance as well, because generally speaking, and I think we may have time to get into a little bit, uh, because uh, access to alternative investments has typically been one of the reasons that uh, U.S. Uh, practitioners have outsourced. Uh, so it's the access and it's the the expertise to to evaluate, uh, you know, whether that access is appropriate uh, and, and how it's applied. And generally speaking, alternatives can be sold or they can be bought. And many will say, well, what's the difference? But there's a there's an incredible difference because uh, investments are bought; they're not sold. So when you have a fiduciary relationship with 100% open architecture, you're paid a, uh, whether it's a fee based on assets or a fixed fee, and that, that fee is independent of what the client's asset allocation is. So in other words, um, the fee is the same, uh, whether you're in a portfolio of 100% ETFs or whether you're in a portfolio of 100% alternative investments. The, the reality is, is that uh, they are not mutually exclusive, they're complementary, and so you're gonna have a mix of those. But there's no incentive, which is a, a very powerful distinction to make. There's no economic incentive for us to be using an alternative investment as opposed to uh, a vehicle that is uh, lower cost uh, that may actually do the same thing as the higher priced alternative investment, hedge fund, or private equity offering. I'd like to dig into that a little bit more when you say no economic incentive. Would private placements, for example, fall into the realm of alternative or exempt stuff that you would use? For sure. Once again, it's not private placement distribution, it's private placement participation. So meaning we're sought as a supplier of capital as an investment management firm. So we're asked all the time by those market constituents that are looking for capital in some form of private placement. It could be a discrete investment. It could be a, a pool of investments or a fund, you know, commingled fund of investments. It doesn't really um, matter. Uh, and generally speaking, they want access to clients and, uh, and are willing to pay uh, some form of a fee uh, for that access to clients. Uh, we are very firm in the fact that we don't raise capital. Uh, that's what investment banks and placement firms do, and that's not what we do. In the U.S., there's registration for that. The registration here is different, um, and so it's 
once again, uh, it's easier for a firm to raise capital and get paid for it, and and also, frankly, to to do both. Which uh, to me, you've got to choose the side of the equation that you stand on, and and it's either consumer or it's issuer, and we're with consumers, so. We don't take those calls, we don't participate in those calls, and we look at those when those uh, investments uh, either make their way to us or we become aware of them through our own research and diligence process. Uh, And that's the buy versus the sell. So in a lot of cases, we choose our investments proactively as opposed to reactively with no tied compensation on the other side. in speaking to what that compensation looks like, because that is is the difference, is capital raising for alternative investments generally does pay a higher commission if someone is selling it than if they were to sell something a little bit more plain vanilla. That's why I asked that question. And the concept of something being sold, not bought, or vice versa, anybody who's listening who's insurance licensed is very familiar with that concept. That's right at the heart of putting insurance in place. Just cycling back to that financial advisor then, when you have a financial advisor who is working in a model like this, I'm interested to know who owns the, let's say, the KYC responsibility? I mean, obviously, the advisor is going to want a handle on what their client is trying to accomplish. Do you really see the, the advisor as owning that KYC responsibility, or does some of that end up passing off to you in that relationship? The answer is both. And, and it's pretty similar to the relationship that we have with our custodians that provide custody for clients in the sense that they have, this would be say someone like National Bank or Fidelity or Raymond James, uh, they have responsibilities because the accounts are being opened in, so we offer a managed account, by the way. So uh, it's not a pooled vehicle. Uh, It is a managed account where clients own their securities uh, in nominee form in their own name. And those accounts are readily transferable as well, just so there's no stickiness or lockups or penalties if uh, arrangements don't work out as they sometimes invariably do. So in our particular case with our custodians, they are able through their uh, requirements regarding the national instrument to discharge some KYC to us as the discretionary manager. So we we have to certify some things that they don't necessarily have to do, uh, and those are generally centered around uh, AML, you know, which is you know think money laundering and around uh, U.S. tax, so uh, FACA, um, things like that. Back to the the partnership between a financial advisor and a portfolio management outsourced CIO firm such as ourselves, the client. In the spirit of a partnership, the advisor is going to have to maintain KYC, uh, and yet we are as well, because there will be a contractual relationship between ourselves and that client. And the investment offering uh, solution, the portfolio that we create, in other words, which is going to be governed by really two documents, which is an investment management agreement or a contract, as well as an investment policy statement, which 
says what you can and can't do, guidelines and firm constraints, is going to be dictated by knowing your client. So we, we have to have that information and we have to structure the investment as it lines up to, to knowing your clients. From a compliance standpoint, some of that burden, certainly on the investment side, gets released to us from the financial advisor, but both firms have their own set of responsibilities and work together on that. As far as licensing goes, would it be possible for, just to start at the most simplest maybe answer to this, would it be possible for a financial planner who is a fee-only financial planner who just charges people to do financial plans and carries no investment licensing, would that person be able to work with you? And then maybe you can talk about how that might change if that person is in an MFDA or IROC dealing representative relationship. The fee-based planners are a great partner for us because in a sense, they're already very aligned. The two different parties are very aligned and they essentially continue to charge a fee for the all-encompassing services that constitute uh, financial advisory uh, or family CFO or however they are representing their arrangement and obligation to that uh, client. And then we price our investment management directly to the client on a wholesale basis. So in that particular case, you've got really two sets of contracts. Uh, the fee-based advisor is charging and maybe they're charging a little bit more because now they're performing investment management in terms of their oversight of us and their selection of us to do that for them. So it's potentially a new offering. The idea though, is that those economics have to make sense to the client. In essence, hopefully a better deliverable and at a similar or less expensive price. And because those non-registered fee-only planners have no organizational constraints, then it's relatively easy operation to perform from the standpoint of compliance and regulation. MFDA advisors can also participate. Most have generally done it through a PM referral. Now, when it comes to MFDA, it's generally you've got a, uh, an independent practitioner that's now aligned themselves with, uh, you know, with an MFDA dealer. Uh, and so there becomes an, an issue of some form of platform approval for some organization that you may not have a relationship with, meaning we don't have a relationship necessarily with them. Maybe we're actually seen as a competitor. So we have no issue with a referral fee or a dual client billing. It's the same economics is really what it comes down to, right? That's how it has to be priced. So for us, we're agnostic. It really is what does the financial advisor need to have? For those that have the ability to charge the fee directly, that's obviously uh, better. In my opinion, it's, it always is better. I think it's better from an optics standpoint as well to the client, but it also creates a bit of a, of a burden on the financial advisor to really justify uh, that value add from a planning perspective, right? Because they are directly invoicing similar to what a fee-only uh, non-licensed uh, planner is doing. So in essence, they're both okay. It really just kind of comes down to what are the structural 
impediments of our partner's firm and how do you adapt to it. And likely what we found with any type of commercial arrangement is if you see value in working together, there's generally where there's a will, there's a way. Now, switching gears again a little bit here, and I know you talked about having this strong background at Wall Street and then internationally as well. What has that led you to in terms of your investment philosophy? Well, I've seen a lot of stuff, that's for sure. A lot of war stories. I think as a bond trader as well, the nature of a bond trader, generally bond yields go down and prices go up when there's bad news. So I think when you come up in the business as a bond trader, you become a natural skeptic. I think that's generally a good thing. Uh, There are times uh, we've spoken offline about biases, and I think some biases can be a detriment, but I think in general, that risk-focused prism, meaning, you know, what is my downside before looking at the upside and really what we try to offer our clients. I mean, when we look at the validity of an investment strategy to be used, we run upwards of 60 different quantitative metrics against a series of past returns over multiple time dimensions. And I'd say 58 of the 60 are encompassed around a risk metric as opposed to a return metric. So, you know, the return is obviously what you're trying to get to, but it's really that focus on the management of those risks that is, frankly, what differentiates us within the industry. And I think the background there and where not only I've come from, but, you know, my team, who I haven't really talked about, my partners on the management and the investment team, John, who has 20 plus years in the industry, as well as years prior involved in various treasury departments doing complex hedging. And then our other partner, Sam, who's our chief risk officer, who was a student of mine in the MSC finance program at Simon Fraser, where I've taught off and on since coming to Vancouver, uh, and who is a PhD in finance and is really responsible for all of our uh, the risk architecture that uh, that we've uh, built up and the intellectual property within the business. So, you know, as a team, all of those things, they obviously translate. I haven't really even gotten into the philosophy behind the firm, you know, our investment philosophy in, in, in those pillars. I've kind of moved a little bit uh, ahead there. So, but I think those things are important to talk to. But I think all of that is is well said and good, but you've got to have foundational pillars in your and your philosophy and in, and, and in your belief system. And then that has to translate to the process and the framework and, and then what you're actually bringing over to clients. So risk is certainly a foundational pillar. I think, you know, and I can't take credit for this concept, but in, in listening to it, it actually was John Hurdle, the, the founder of the OCIO, who in a podcast was talking about the, the success equation of an organization and how it really is about four different parts. Uh, The first being uh, your culture and your structure. Um, So what do you stand for and how are you set up structure-wise? The the next part of that is your philosophy, and I'll touch on some of the components of that. Uh, And the next part is execution. So you can destroy value through mis-execution and implementation, or you can add value uh, but execution becomes tandem out. And then I think the, the fourth thing is, 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 is random outcomes or luck. So, um, and I think, uh, 
a lot of us need to be humble about the role of luck in our various success equations, right? How much of it was us and how much of it was the, the market propelling us or, or, or bailing us out of something, right? And, and having that distinction to, and that humility to, uh, to understand the difference. Um, and so, you know, John uh, Hurdle, you know, went on to speak about, you know, how, um, you know, great programs, right? Uh, and, you know, the, the, and I think the sports team analogy is a great one. He mentioned specifically the New England Patriots in football. You know, I would uh, I would uh, take that a little bit further to add my own twist to it. Uh, you know, the Golden State Warriors, even though they're down a little bit this year, uh, they're they've got a great system. And the San Antonio Spurs would be another one under Greg Popovich, right? So we are striving really to emulate you know, these great programs, um, you know, the cultures of programs, and then the the actual, the methods of some of these investment programs and firms, other outsourced CIOs, as well as uh, some top endowments and pension funds, uh, where we highly respect the personnel and the culture and, and, and what they've been able to achieve. And we think that that is something that in the past has not been available to the Canadian private client investor landscape, and we think it can be. So, you know, really just driving into uh, the more traditional kind of investment things, uh, this is pretty standard. Uh, strategic asset allocation drives returns. Uh, that's a lot of evidence uh, suggesting that it's not the specific in, in instruments, it's the asset classes. So, uh, you know, we don't believe that market timing works very well. Uh, you know, there's evidence. Uh, Morningstar's got a wide body of research that talks about if you miss the 10 best days in the market over the course of, I don't know if it's a five, seven, 10 year period, uh, but uh, the detraction on returns is quite significant. So people play a lot of games trying to figure out how to time the market. It doesn't work. Um, stock selection at the portfolio level is incredibly overvalued. Um, you know, the most of that information is, is perfectly reflected in prices. Um, uh, you know, I do think that uh, there is some specialization that can occur through uh, managers uh, that you might want to use uh, as a segment of your portfolio where concentrated uh, equity and high conviction is you're able to achieve some excess return, but, uh, but, but certainly not at the portfolio level, meaning, and that's one of the reasons why we don't ever talk about individual stocks and, and we rarely own any individual stocks uh, for our clients. Um, you know, I think most forms of portfolio insurance are pretty expensive. They've got execution risk, and we think diversification is really the only true free lunch. And then I think a lot of people, constituents in the industry, talk about uh, passive and active. Uh, the debate is typically framed wrong because it's uh, usually uh, someone sitting in one camp or another for various reasons. Uh, a lot of them having to do with uh, of where they actually uh, fit into the system. Uh, but we believe in proper portfolio construction. Um, the two are complementary as opposed to mutually excuse, exclusive. And I think, I guess, lastly, from the standpoint of the pillars of our, of our philosophy is that, um, you know, excess return is hard to come by, but it is there. Uh, and you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know where to find it. Um, and that also applies for true diversification. Uh, a lot of uh, investments are marketed as uh, as providing diversification, yet the problem is when you really need that diversification, think back to the 2008 financial crisis, 
correlations go to one and there really isn't any diversification. So these are really the two areas, the search for excess return and the search for real and meaningful diversification where we would spend the majority of our active time in investment research and portfolio construction and management. It's a really well-developed philosophy. Okay, this has been a really useful discussion for me, Steve. I was honestly, before we started talking, I didn't really understand the difference between straight up PM referral relationship and the OCIO model that you're working under. I think that you've really helped to explain that. I'm wondering, you know, you just spent a good few minutes talking about investment philosophy. And now if I'm a financial advisor trying to explain that value proposition, what do you have in terms of tools or, or how does the financial advisor take that back to their client to say, look, this is part of my value proposition is a, you know, I work with this OCIO type of operation. Yeah. So in terms of, just to clarify, in terms of, of kind of how they can fold that into their discussions and into their, uh, I guess, kind of client acquisition process. Yeah, even if you were going to, uh, and I know you talked about this being a little bit difficult to transition a client into and you prefer new relationships, but yeah, if I'm going to sort of distill this down to something that I can present to the client to, you know, maybe not understand active and passive, may not understand impact of fees, may not understand, you know, what you talked about in terms of individual security selection. Is there some sort of elevator pitch? And I don't necessarily want to go that tight, but. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, I mean, I, I think the, f- the first layer is, is certainly the advisor uh, partner, right? They have to see the need. Uh, and so whether that's a need to, uh, to offer something better, uh, to what they're currently giving their clients. And I'm not suggesting that's always the case, but that's, uh, we can always do things better. Uh, We can do what we do better and that's what we strive to do every single day. So so that's kind of the first layer is is that self-realization that uh, that there may be something better, uh, but also that realization that there may be something that is now uh, attainable that wasn't attainable in the past uh, because uh, they were limited, right? They were limited uh, by some uh, some constraint, right? Uh, uh, it could be a, a knowledge gap. Um, it could be personnel gap. It could be uh, an organizational gap, right? Um, and uh, depending on what those are, right? And and so I think once you achieve buy-in from the financial advisor. Then, then you can structure what that education uh, looks like uh, with respect to the client, because uh, at that point uh, they are coming uh, to a an existing client or a sp- prospective client with uh, with something that is added uh, and really kind of closes the loop on on a financial plan, uh, and it, it eliminates some of that delinking. Uh, of the various different uh, siloed relationships uh, that tend to prevail here. Um, so so there's, there's, there's a reason that in business succession and preparing for exits that uh, investment managers are, are brought in uh, to the equation when in reality uh, 
there's a lot of structuring uh, expertise from a legal and a tax sense that is, frankly, at that point, more important. And, and, and the reason being is, is, is that the investment management uh, and the direction that you go in is a byproduct of the decisions that you make uh, in preparation uh, for that. And so, so that investment manager becomes uh, pretty critical uh, to, be, to be brought in. Uh, and it certainly, I think, uh, will create leverage. So uh, let's talk about, um, you know, maybe an advisor that as a, I don't know, typical average household, you know, investable assets are, you know, four or $500,000, right? There's a lot of, of those families, certainly here in, uh, you know, in, in Canada and in British Columbia and certainly in the lower mainland uh Yet there's many that have, you know, three to five million, uh, and that may not have been uh, a focus uh, market that uh, that you now may be able to go into. Um, but it starts with that advisor has to uh, to buy in because if they're not bought in, then there's no way they're going to be able to um, either get an, an existing client to buy in because it's like, look, this is, you know, what the doctor has recommended they being the doctor right and uh uh so th you know that buy in has to come uh you know by virtue of a of a relationship uh you know that's developed education uh and then and then what that educational component looks like uh to the direct end client is something that you structure and you would work with the uh the financial advisor on that's perfect. Well, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness you put into this today, Steve, and, and helping to close that knowledge gap. That's the one thing that I can work to address. And uh, we, of course, try to do that in all kinds of areas. So I greatly appreciate the opportunity and have a wonderful day. Okay, I'm really happy to have Steve Adang back with us here. Steve is actually joining us for part two to the part two we already have. We found that we could squeeze in another 10 or 15 minutes of content here. And Steve was more than happy to take the opportunity. We had a couple unanswered questions from last time. And I'm just going to roll right into it here, Steve. So the first question here is concerning digital advisory or robo-advisor or whatever this tool is. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts about digital advisory solutions in that world are. I think they've generally been really good, you know, on the whole, certainly for smaller investors, for DIY investors, I think they work pretty well for some financial planning practices. We believe that technology is an enabler, but you also need to be careful not to overvalue and overpay for it. And so the question comes down to is whether each platform is more about technology and about ease of use in onboarding or what does the PM or investment management solution actually look like? So many investment management firms do now have some form of digital onboarding, ourselves included, and I think it's expected and you're only going to see more of it. So the trend is firmly in place there. So we believe that the technology component should be priced pretty cheaply because it can be replicated and we still see value in the IM. So the question then comes down to for said digital advisory solution, what does that investment management look like? We, for one, 
think that artificial intelligence is highly unlikely to produce a better outcome, at least in the public markets. I think if you're operating with insufficient information, you're a peer indexer, then this can be viable for you. You just don't want to pay too much for it. But our value add from what we've spoken about prior to the call here is mainly that excess return and diversification are available through active management. It's mainly going to come from the private markets and managers in public markets that are less constrained from taking on some form of illiquidity and leverage. This is quantitative and it's qualitative. And the process to separate the wheat from the chaff, select investments, managing them together as a portfolio really just can't be algo in our opinion. And that's where the differentiation and the reward lies. And it's just a lot of elbow grease. I would say the other differences come down to the advice and the client service pieces where human beings are there, they're needed, they're necessary, particularly in the times that we are in. And uh, whether those platforms actually have someone that's going to be able to provide the advice and the client service. And I think lastly, what I would say about the digital advisory solutions, when you look at financial planners, particularly in the US, around 7% are considering using digital advisors, whereas TAMPs and the use of other RIAs, which is, I guess, the equivalent of an outsourced CIO, those percentages are more like 52 and 41%. That uptake in the United States, would you suggest that that is mostly about efficiency or maybe reducing costs versus finding investment opportunities or finding return, for example? Well, I would say for those that are looking at TAMPs and the use of other firms as specialists, that would be more for a more active, higher value add investment management deliverable. And for those that are really looking at more efficiency and costs, that would be why they would look at the digital platforms. I want to summarize here. So what you're saying basically is that in the U.S., about 7% of firms are looking at a digital advisor whereas about 52% would be looking at a TAMP and about 41% would be looking at an RIA. I've got that right then? Not necessarily. That's more of the reasons for considering outsourcing and what you would outsource to. So there's probably some overlap because obviously there's going to be some other factors in there as well. In terms of what financial advisors are considering using, those were the results of the survey that I've been mentioning throughout the course of these two podcasts. I got you now. So yeah, because there'd be some that would be looking at all three and some that would be looking at none of the above, right? Yeah, I'd say main reasons, right? And and kind of where you're going with it. We just believe that the digital advisor platforms have been great to spur technological efficiency and other advances, ease of use. And you're going to now see traditional firms that are highly technical or technological as well, you know, hybrid firms essentially. And you've seen it even with the digital advisory firms that are now also hiring human financial advisors too. Thanks. Now, just to switch gears here, Steve, something that you and I chatted a little bit about previously, and I'd like to follow up on here is alternative investments. And I know the word alternative has a bunch of different meanings, private market or exempt market. I know they're not all exactly the same thing, but that sort of realm of stuff I know is a common reason why RIAs and others would outsource. What's your take on alternative investments? Where do they fit in the Anchor Pacific model? 
We've talked about it a little bit briefly and uh, happy to expand upon it a little bit further here. We were, I would say, pretty early adopters of alternative investments. When we started the firm, we knew that it was going to be a focus area for us. The firm was actually set up to capitalize on what we saw as uh, secular growth in this market segment and as well as the significant scarcity value as a result of a knowledge gap that we saw that existed in the private wealth marketplace and that we have touched upon earlier in these podcasts. So our approach to alternatives is novel in our opinion, and everyone does say that, and we're happy to get into the weeds and really show that as anyone is willing and able to get technical. But what we really do is we try to simplify and distill something that's incredibly complex and not also make alternatives into something that they're not. What I mean by that is that Many in the industry have proclaimed alternative investments as this form of holy grail of investing where alternatives are going to save you. And that's really just simply not true. First and foremost, alternatives are a label and they're a label only. And what they mean is they mean something that is generating exposure through something that is not traditional, meaning the largest asset class is being equities and fixed income. So that a lot of that is through operating in inefficient markets, dealing in leverage, dealing in some form of illiquidity. Generally, it's providing illiquidity. It could be transacting in, in volatility and certainly the ability to go long and short, meaning to buy something that in theory is inexpensive and sell something against it that is expensive and trade a basis. Uh, Those are all different things that create an extra level of really analytical acumen that is lacking. So this is combined with the fact that asset manufacturers are pointing to the asset allocations of the large institutional investors. Yale would be the one that is most often cited because they were the earliest to really make alternatives a regular part of their program. And then closer to home here, the largest Canadian pensions. So there's this rush to create product that checks that box. And what investors need to understand is that investing in the sector of alternatives is a program and it's not a product. It's a highly technical skill set. Discipline process is mandatory because you've got to distill all these different offerings and you've got to figure out what purpose they serve individually and then collectively within your portfolio. So the implementation and the execution risk are pretty high. And without really knowing what you're doing, you're more likely to detract from value than to add value. So our investment office employs two holders of the KIA charter. KIA stands for Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst. And it's globally recognized as the highest designation for analyzing alternatives. And just from the standpoint of context, everyone here, for the most part, has probably heard of the CFA. We've spoken about the number of financial service professionals here in Canada. So there are, by my last count, in excess of 160,000 CFA charter holders globally, of which about 20,000 are in Canada. There are 10,000 CAIA members, charter holders globally, of which 1,000 are in Canada. And if you remember, I said there were 120,000 registered financial service professionals in Canada. So you've got 120,000 professionals, of which about 5,000 I uh, mentioned are investment counselor slash portfolio manager. You've got 20,000 that have a CFA, which is great. 
that's going to work really well for portfolio management of traditional portfolios. You've got 1,000 and growing here in Canada that really have this higher level of knowledge of alternative investments. So you look at the growth in that market, look at all the products that are coming online, and you've got a resource gap that really does need to be managed. You will not be able to hire and train and bring everyone up to the curve as fast as things are happening and changing. And I think, you know, with the recent market volatility, there will be more and more interest in how alternative investments may be able to be incorporated into investment programs where they currently aren't being utilized or they're being underutilized or maybe they're being misutilized. And that's where I think a further differentiation in our practice comes into play. Now, I don't want to assume too much with my question here, but do you see those alternatives as primarily being about finding return where you wouldn't find it? Or is it primarily about managing volatility? Or is there no good answer to that question? I think it's both. I think to find excess return, it's not as simple as going out and trying to find some cheap stocks. So I think in the public market, seeking excess return is almost a futile exercise. So I think it's there where you have to move either into private markets or into areas of the marketplace, frankly, where there isn't a lot of competition. So this has been written about in a lot of behavioral streams of talk, but there's the analogy of Michael Mobison has written quite a bit about it. Howard Marks of Oak Tree has written quite a bit about it, but the analogy of the card player, the separation of skill and luck, and about the, the poker player that wants to go out and find the best games. And when in actuality, they should be out looking for the weaker games. And so generally speaking, there is excess return that's available when you can find a managers that are operating in weaker games. So that could be markets that are dominated by retail investors where you can trade against lesser informed investors, or you may be able to trade in markets where there are structural impediments, or you have agents in the marketplace that are acting for economic reasons. So that would be ability to potentially trade against central banks. Although I wouldn't say that that's been something you'd want to do you know, in these last 10 years and probably going forward. But generally speaking, central banks have been non-economic buyers. The problem is they've had trillion dollars of balance sheet to work with, a really unlimited balance sheet. So I would actually say that the real value in alternative investments, particularly in ones that utilize public strategies to what many would have called a hedge fund many years ago, which is also a naive label, would be, uh, as I spoke to those managers that have the ability to deal outside of equities, to be able to sell securities that are richly priced, the abilities to lever those portfolios uh, through some form of financing and to trade you know, other markets like volatility, where a package or a portfolio of those types of managers can provide alternative risk premiums, exposures away from the equity market, dampen volatility so they become you know, portfolio stabilization, stabilization agents uh, and volatility smoothers providing you know more of an absolute return that's a little bit more independent of whether the equity markets are up and down on a given day or a given month or another discrete period of time. Perfect. And of course, your clients would be in a position where the illiquidity associated with alternative investments really isn't going to hurt them, right? And you're not putting 100% of assets into 
alternatives? No, not at all. And most of our access to alternatives has been in what we would consider to be more of the liquid or marketable alternative sector, Uh, not necessarily daily liquidity, but liquidity within 90 to 180 days. What we do in truly illiquid investments is a lot less, mainly because I just don't think that individuals can really forecast how how much illiquidity they can really take on because things really do change. Cash flow is needed. So we do see a potential problem down the road that a lot of private client portfolios have really taken on the illiquidity premium in the search for a combination of excess return and maybe a false sense of stability and diversification. But the reality is, is that Private illiquid investments, they don't mark to market, but they actually have substantially more volatility than publicly traded equities. It's just not apparent to the typical person because they're not seeing a lot of price volatility in their marks. But those private equity, for example, it does price off of the public markets. And and when the public markets become fractured, when they become more expensive or harder to access, there will be an implication in the private markets. It just may not be apparent until it's frankly too late. So we're pretty careful about the illiquidity risk that we assume on behalf of clients. It's visible to every client through our portal. And we don't really want to tie up a lot of excess client capital beyond five years. And we want to keep a lot of that really to uh, inside of three years. But it's a part of one of several multi-dimensions that we look at, the differentiation between active and passive, between public and private, and between liquid, modestly illiquid, and very illiquid. You made a couple strong points in there that I would certainly want to hear as a financial planner putting my client's money into these types of investments, right? I think that recognition that we just can't predict exactly where liquidity is needed. And I assume, especially you'd be dealing with a fair number of clients who would be pre-retirement or early retirement. I always think those periods are a lot more volatile, not investment volatile, but really stuff that happens volatile. So I appreciate that approach to liquidity. Now, just on the note of liquidity here, so we're recording this on March the 9th. For those who are paying attention, that's the day after we had the announcements out of Saudi Arabia and Russia concerning the significant discounts on oil pricing, which has had, I think, significant shockwaves. I'm wondering if you can, and of course, the whole coronavirus issue is front and center right now, and I don't want to get into prognostication or anything like that, Steve, but I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit about how you view this volatility. Yeah, sure, Jason. Uh, I'll also say another thing because it was in the back of my mind. And then when you actually said March 9th, March 9th is also what would be the 11-year anniversary of the market bottoming after the financial crisis as well. Kind of interesting how it's all playing out to the same date. As we were talking offline a little bit earlier, I would have answered the same question differently last week, and I'll probably answer it differently if you were to ask me again next week, because this is right now, you have something that could not have been forecasted, the coronavirus, which has now taken on a variety of life, which is leading to a bunch of other things. So the first reactions have been, well, 
you're looking at, at the very least, a slowdown of growth because of interruptions in supply chain, certainly disruptions in the travel industry, uh, things centered around the travel industry. Now oil comes into focus, and who knows what the next level portions of the economy are going to lead to, right? No one knows. We put out client letters a week ago Friday, which was the end of February, just to let them know how things were, what forces were at play and how that was impacting their portfolios with a promise that as we got our net asset values in uh, for some of our funds that were on some form of lag reporting that we were going to be in contact with them again early the following week, which was a week ago today. We said more or less the same thing that we did then, which was the only thing is we had more specific information in terms of you know what was working and maybe things that were starting to break down. But mainly, we don't know what disruptions are going to look like. We didn't know then. We don't know now. All we can do is plan and adapt. And you do that through having a process. And we've been speaking to risk management since this firm became a portfolio manager in early 2016. Been living risk management our whole careers. No one's really wanted to talk about risk management. The markets are constantly a battle between fear and greed. And greed has won out more or less over the last 10 years, really since we hit that bottom now 11 years ago to the day, I would actually say probably the first two or three years coming out of the crisis, it was a little bit more of an evenly matched battle between fear and greed. I would say that really once we kind of came through 2012, there's been no looking back, bit of a hiccup in 2015 uh, with China and the devaluation of their currency, a little bit of a hiccup in late 2018, and the market's taken off again every time. Not discounting that more stimulus will potentially bring this market back quickly, but the Fed lowered rates 50 basis points on Tuesday. The market sold off on the news, and there's very little left that central banks can do now with Fed funds now at 1%. And so fiscal stimulus, there's just a lot of things out there that, frankly, we don't want to kind of have to think about because we just don't know. And we've generally slept well at night with our portfolios for many years. We've been comfortable with where we were, and we continue to be comfortable that the process is sound. We had a lot of strategies in the portfolio that have made money through this turmoil, not enough to counteract the fact that the equity markets are now down close to 20%. But we're pretty pleased that what we've designed and put into place has protected client capital. And we're going to kind of continue to stand on those pillars and adapt as circumstances weren't adapting. And we're going to be proactive as opposed to reactive. So it sounds like, uh, well, your answer might change a little bit. Your strategy does not change. Thanks very much, Steve, for adding on to this earlier work. I appreciate appreciate some very well thought through answers. And again, I think answers that would appeal to somebody who's thinking about things from a financial planning perspective. Any last minute words, Steve? I just want to say thanks again. We value working with financial planners and planning-centric processes and look forward to engaging with some of this audience at any point in time if anyone wants to have a conversation, as well as doing more things in collaboration. We'll have your website, the Anchor Pacific website, linked up in the show notes. And I know you had mentioned you're more than happy if people track you down on LinkedIn. That's Steve Adang on LinkedIn. 
Yeah, and a phone call, really anything. We're in a world where uh, everything is shared these days and conversations and meetings are free and they go a long way. So we welcome any type of engagement uh, as it makes sense to anyone who's out there listening. Okay, here, Steve, uh, really piqued my curiosity a couple times in that interview. I learned a lot uh, going through that. That's uh, probably in terms of the amount of learning I got to do the most that I've ever learned in uh, in one of the podcast episodes. So I always appreciate that. Learning is uh, such a valuable thing for us. Now, I wanted to just highlight uh, one last thing here. There's lots in there. And if you have questions, certainly you're welcome to email me, and I'm happy to go through those questions. But uh, we touched early in the interview on private placements. And uh, private placement is where we have somebody who's in the business of raising capital. You hear Steve talk about that business of raising capital. And they don't want to take that that opportunity public. The requirements to take a, a capital raising opportunity public are pretty high. You have to get approved by the Securities Commission. Then you have to get approved by the market that you're going to list your securities on. It can be easier sometimes just to go to a private placement, which is where you might have a a small number of investors, institutional investors like uh, Steve's firm here, who would be willing to put in whatever, a million or five million or $20 million or some amount like that, where you can just have that small pool of investors to meet all of your capital requirements. The sort of murky thing about private placements is that they actually can pay a fairly generous commission, and that's not always uh, well disclosed. So this is something I think that you should ask, much like I asked Steve in the interview here, but if you're dealing with a discretionary portfolio manager, I think it's worth asking how they manage that type of potential conflict of interest. What happens when somebody comes to them and says, hey, we have a, a private placement opportunity for you here. We're looking to raise $100 million, and we have a, a placement fee. We'll pay 4% or whatever it is to any firm that sends us capital. Well, once you throw that placement fee in there, I would suggest that that creates a little bit of uh, opportunity for conflict of interest. And I would want to know that uh, when I am putting money with anybody else who's going to manage funds for me. You don't find that with uh, traditional mutual funds. Traditional mutual funds are uh, generally restricted. You can read the Part B prospectus, but the Part B prospectus will normally tell you if the fund manager would ever use private placements or whatever, and that is not a normal thing. Most of the mutual funds you'll deal with only deal with uh, only trade in publicly traded securities. You just don't have that opportunity for that conflict of interest there. So. Uh, that's And that's true for uh, sort of most managed money like that. Most folks that most of you on this call would send money to for professional management would just not have the opportunity to use something like that, which is why, like I say, if you're dealing with a firm like Steve's, you want to understand how it is that they get paid. You want to understand some of their compensation model, understand how they treat it as far as alternate and private securities. Those are all areas that I think it's worth uh, delving into uh, before you start to send money over to those folks. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. 
you'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. Join me in a couple weeks again when we'll talk to uh, Christian. Christian has a really interesting client scenario concerning RSPs and beneficiary designations. Uh, we get into a fair bit of depth in that particular area. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. <laughs>